after years of failed clinical trials, we finally have an approved therapy for geographic atrophy and more are hopefully on the way. But how are you going to integrate all of this into your clinic? I'm Rebecca Hepp, Editor-in-Chief of Retina Today, and you're listening to New Retina Radio, brought to you by Retina Today and Bryn Mawr Communications. Today, we are talking with a panel of experts about the introduction of GA therapies into the retina clinic. Joining me as our moderators are Drs. Alan Ho and Bob Avery. Alan, Bob? Thank you for the introduction, Rebecca. I'm Alan Ho. I'm director of the uh, Retina Research Unit at Wills Eye Hospital in Philadelphia, and excited to be here with some experts and friends and colleagues um, regarding this new treatment uh, approved six weeks ago, but commercially available just over four weeks. So we're looking forward to their insights. Bob? Yeah, it's an exciting time. And I'm thrilled to be part of this panel. I'm Bob Avery, founder of uh, California Retina Consultants here in Santa Barbara, California. And let's start off with a brief introduction from each of our panelists. Eleanor? My name is Nora Ladd. I'm a medical retina specialist and researcher on dry MD here at Duke Eye Center. I direct ophthalmology clinical research at Duke, and along with Jeff, I served as a lead PI for one of the registration studies for this geographic atrophy treatment. Hi, I'm Jeff Heyer. I'm the director of the retina service and retina research at Ophthalmic Consultants of Boston. And as Nora said, we had the privilege of being co-chairs of the steering committee and PIs of the Derby and Oak study. I'm Jill Shredut. I'm with California Retina Consultants, Santa Barbara, California. Uh, and we were also honored to be part of this uh, trial, Oaks and Derby. Thank you, guys. Thank you for taking the time. Our our uh, our listeners and our uh, viewers in the, in the print publication are going to be very interested in your perspectives, considering your experience uh, with uh, Cyfovri, Pegsidocoplan, in patients with geographic atrophy. And and it is a milestone in the sense that we've had clinical trials for geographic atrophy that have failed with complement modulation. So it wasn't really clear as to whether or not um, modifying the immune pathway, the complement pathway with C3 that was going to work. Um, further, the, this conversation with patients is, is very different now that we have an approved treatment in that we're simply slowing progression of disease. Um, let me ask Jeff to 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 start and and just say a little bit about what what you talk to the patients about and who you talk to the patients about when when you have this in your toolbox. Yeah, so I think as both you and Bob started off by stating, it's we're excited to have something to offer these patients. You know, it, when patients presented. 15, 20 years ago, years ago with wet AMD, we talked about not having something. And then we had the explosion of the anti-VEGF era. And we were able to offer these patients really um, nothing short of remarkable treatment and being able to control the disease and in many patients improve vision. But shortly after that, we all recognized that dry AMD was uh, an ongoing problem. It was a debilitating uh, unremitting disease that was going to take care of their central vision in a negative way. And so the the develop the approval of Cyfovri as the first FDA approved agent to treat dry AMD is is a 
important step in our ability to control this disease. I tell patients that we do now have an FDA approved therapy that this therapy um, has a modest benefit in that it's a first step in being able to slow the rate of progression of geographic atrophy. It doesn't stop it. It doesn't reverse it. And even with treatment, patients are going to notice that they still lose vision, but they're going to lose vision at a slower rate than if they did nothing. And as we talk about the type of patients to treat in many patients, the earlier on that we capture their geographic atrophy, meaning if we're able to capture it before it involves the fovea, we're able to capture it before those multifocal lesions coalesce, we may be able to have bigger impacts on the patient's outcome. I have a question for the panel. Um, what about patient selection? Is this drug for every GA patient who walks through the door? Should we be more discerning in its use? Uh, I think uh, this is something we have to apply the art of medicine to because the label is quite broad, but uh, I certainly don't offer it to every one of my patients. But I'd like to hear from the panel, who is the ideal patient and who are you offering it to? Excellent question, Bob. So first, I'd like to agree with what Jeff has said and um, to highlight that GA is truly a huge unmet clinical need. And we haven't been fortunate enough to have approved treatments until recently. Again, pexetacopelin does not stop or reverse the disease, but it slows disease progression. The effect is very meaningful because it preserves the cells in the retina responsible for vision for longer in these patients. And the protective effect of the drug we know increases the longer duration of therapy in this disease that's chronic. It works best when applied earlier before the disease affects the foveal center. So I would think about that when recommending treatment for patients. I would take into account the fellow eye and whether vision was lost there, but then I keep in mind that extra fovea lesions benefit the most. Um, and then I'll have a full conversation about how nearly all medicines have side effects if they work. I will also explain to our patients that one of the potential side effects is potential conversion to the wet form of disease for which we have excellent treatments. Otherwise, the drug was shown to be safe and well tolerated. But yes, patient selection will be part of the art of medicine. We have to take into account the comorbidities, ability to come in for frequent injections and how frequent, monthly versus every other month, um, and definitely the status of the fellow eye. The the label is indeed broad. Um, I would say surprisingly broad um, in that there are no restrictions for size. There are no restrictions for location. There are no restrictions on patients who have concomitant uh, wet AMD in an eye with atrophy, which is actually, when I think about it, maybe a sweet spot for me for patients who have had chronic anti-VEGF injection to control their wet disease, but are starting to decline um, from atrophy. Dilshire, regarding selection and how you speak to patients, what, what's, what, what's your perspective on this, since we do have basically broad guidelines? Yeah, I actually applaud, you know, the FDA's decision to make this label broad. I mean, this, uh, this study was a large trial with a very heterogeneous population, uh, and the majority of patients are actually phobial in, in, in uh, Oaks and Derby, which was which is which is very interesting. 
Um, I don't think it's for every patient, but you know, it's remarkable how many patients are aware of this drug already, you know, whether it be through the direct-to-consumer campaign or whether it be from the news outlets. And so I've already had many patients asking about this drug, you know, whether or not I think that they're a candidate. So it's almost important to discuss, you know, with all of our AMD patients uh, or all of our AMD patients with the GA, you know, who might be a, a good candidate or not. But I agree with, with the other comments. If you can start this early in a patient, you know, it seems that those patients are going to have the greatest benefit. Um, you know, patients with center GA, uh, you know, with very low vision lighting are not going to benefit, though in the trial, you know, patients could be enrolled up to 2320 uh, vision. And so, you know, generally, if a patient's much worse than that, I don't think that they'd be a great candidate. Um, but I mean, I'm offering it to a wide variety of patients just based on the trial, you know, some of those uh, inclusion exclusion criteria that were in the trial. Uh, if I see patients that have that perilesional hyperautofluorescence or documented growth of GA, uh, I think those are also good candidates uh, for this drug. You know, if I can say one thing, it's interesting. I, I have exactly the same approach that Nora and Dilsher described in, in earlier patients, foveal sparing. But it, I had a patient today who came in and said, well, I have geographic atrophy. Why wouldn't you think I'd be a good candidate? And I said, look, you've already had central involvement and this isn't going to help your central vision at all. And they said, well, isn't this going to slow the growth of what I have? And, and I said, well, certainly that's what the studies have shown. And he said, well, isn't it an advantage to have a smaller central lesion than a larger central lesion? And, and I, you know, the patient brings up a good point there. We've certainly seen patients with bilateral disease with two 2,400 lesions, but one is you know, two disc areas and one is six disc areas and is the two disc area better. And so I haven't started offering it to those patients yet. We're moving sort of in a slow piecewise manner, but it, that patient brings up a strong argument. And, and on, the, on the theme of broad label, we have data sets that are speaking to about every month or every other month therapy and the label allows us to treat every 25 to 60 days is what's noted in the label i believe how um how are you guys going to decide what the right interval will be and how would you admix that schedule with say a patient who is getting treatment for wet amd concomitantly for me i think that you know with times with time we'll probably have a better means of risk stratifying these patients, you know, it's possible that this will happen with, you know, the help of AI. But for now, you know, I, I generally am favoring uh, the every other month dosing uh, for really three reasons. You know, the first reason is efficacy. The difference between every month and every other month dosing was small, you know, on the order of 3% at month 24, uh, you know, 17% in the every other, every other month group versus 20% reduction in lesion growth in the monthly group. And so this difference is not that much for me. Second is burden. You know, the loss to follow-up uh, was less in the every other month group. It was 21% in the trial versus 31% uh, in the every other month group at 24 months. And so this is going to be larger uh, in the real world population. So I think that, you know, making a more palatable dosing scheme from the start is probably most prudent. And then finally, safety. I, I felt that the rates of key adverse events were lower in the every other month dosing group, such as 
CNV onset or optic neuropathy. So for those reasons, I think I also favor the area of the month dosing group. But there might be patients that are high risk with documented, you know, rapid GA growth with parafovial, and they may opt for you know monthly or even every six week dosing. And so, uh, but I think the majority of my patients for now, I think I'll begin with every other month. I agree with all these considerations. In the end, though, as uh, Jeff's case points out, I think a lot of these decisions will be patient-driven, and um, we'll have to have thorough conversations about all these issues and um, all the points you brought out. And we also have to keep in mind that <clears throat> these J injections will add to our large volume in our clinics. Also, if a patient converts to neovascular MD, the decision will need to be made how to give the two injections, either on the same day 30 minutes apart as in the trials are on separate days, depending on clinic flow and patient physician preference. But I think patient preference will pay, will, will, um, will be a key um, will factor here. And there'll be patients that'll be very motivated to slow down their disease progression, especially if they lost the other eye, or if they really feel that the disease is encroaching or the center of the vision or impairing their peripheral vision as in as Jeff's case illustrated. So they might be very motivated to have monthly injections despite the data presentation, as you mentioned, Dilshar. So I think we'll have to have um, a lot of chair time up front and discuss all these considerations and make a joint decision about all these issues. I agree completely. For me, the I think the main component that's gonna drive my decision is the safety. And where, as Dilshar noted, the the Efficacy is relatively close. There are clear benefits seen in the monthly over the every other month, but the the safety is also clearly better in the every other month than the monthly. When you look at the rate of CNV, roughly 12% versus 7% at 24 months versus 3% in the, the sham group. And the ischemic optic neuropathy, which were... Uh, clearly more prevalent in the monthly versus the every other month. I think for most patients, the safety is going to drive that decision. But as Nora said, there are certainly some patients who are going to be extremely motivated to have as big an effect as is possible. And those are probably the patients that you would put on monthly dosing. Jeff, I think those are very important points. I, I agree with what everyone has said. And um, I've been a bit more focused on the interschemic optic neuropathy when I realized that there were seven patients in the every month group and one patient in the every other month group and zero patients in the sham group, all groups about 420 patients in size. And that somewhat of a, if you want to call it a dose response curve, concerns me uh, until we know more. And so personally, I've been offering it on an every other month basis in in my population, just based on that, you know, observation of seven versus one. I don't know that that's going to hold out. Uh, and, and these were not all severe. Only three of the eight were severe um, cases, SAEs. And so um, it, it may be overkill, but that's pushing me towards uh, every other month, given the the efficacy doesn't seem to be that different, as Dilshire pointed out. And as you said, safety is paramount in this sort of uh, scenario because the ideal patients are typically monocular. They've lost one eye from GA and, and they're seeing something in the other eye, either on the monitor or 
seeing a visual field boss. And, and those are the ideal patients to sign up because they're, they're motivated. And yet I would hate to have a hand in, in creating a problem for them, um, you know, as a side effect and unintended consequence. And so I've, I've at this point headed towards uh, every other month dosing. Um, any other comments in that regard? Yeah, I do think it, it, from what I understand, it does appear as if these patients are largely patients with discs at risk. Um, but still, there's a, as you said, it's seven to one in the monthly versus every other month. So while there may be characteristics that you can be aware of and look out for in treating these patients, um, the safety of the every other month looks quite good. And the dose response is definitely something to think about. Um, and I brought out, that's why I brought up the exudation and the higher likelihood of that happening in patients on monthly injections, and then that adding to our injection burden in clinic and also to the patient burden to have two injections in one eye. So I would favor every other month dosing as well in the majority of my patients, unless they are really motivated to have the monthly. And also we'll discuss the optic neuropathy cases and those data that are very important. Bill, sure, I have a question for you since I know you pay attention to billing. How are you going to handle those wet patients uh, who also have GA? Uh, do you plan on uh, doing the injection on a separate day for the, for the wet disease? Um, and if so, are you concerned about having two injection codes for the same eye within a sort of a 28-day window? Do you think that may trigger some of our Medicare Advantage plans uh, algorithms to reject your claim? Yeah, I'm actually very concerned about that. I think that, you know, there's a high chance that, you know, in the beginning here, um, we're, we will have rejected claims. And and so I think we have to be cautious about how to proceed here. You know, there, there unfortunately are many patients that require you know, treatment for both GA and CNVM. And, I'm, and in the absence of the payer issues, I would be perfectly comfortable injecting them on the same day, uh, perhaps waiting, you know, 15 to 30 minutes between the injections, maybe starting with the anti-VEGF injection since that volume is less, and then proceeding with the GA drug. Um, but I, I, I'm hoping that there will be guidance, and I'm optimistic that you know over time these things will work themselves out, so that you know we can code and and, and be uh, paid for um, the the injections on the same day, and also within a 28 month, a 28 day window. The uh, the safety discussion is obviously from the patient's point of view something they rely upon us for, and we have a data set that includes. 12,000 injections, which is a large number of injections, but not a large number of patients. If there are a million patients with GA in the United States and several million or 5 million throughout the world, um, I think it'll be important for our community to be vigilant in monitoring for the safety issues that that we, we come to see when uh, new products are introduced to the market. For example, all the biologics that we've seen in the anti-VEGF era have gone through little, little perturbations in their safety profile where we've seen intraocular inflammation or this kind of thing. We have not seen um, ischemic optic neuropathy. So that's something that I don't understand and, and prompts pause for me, um, especially in light of the fact that 
These might be the vulnerable patients with only one good eye. And you're thinking about this in a patient with um, not non-center involved um, geographic atrophy. But I think an important point message for our, for our listeners and our readership is that um, we should be vigilant and use uh, organizations and systematic reporting like the ASRS REST Committee to, um, to keep tally. Well, we owe that to our patients for sure. Alan, I think you highlighted the ASRS REST Committee, and that's that that committee has really been invaluable to retina specialists to helping to pick up early on signals that as individual practitioners we might not pick up. So I, I echo your comments that it would be very helpful to report anything to of any of the drugs to the REST Committee. And I'm not, and I'm not calling out or or calling out potential potholes, but but I think you know, from my perspective, as as the first approved geographic atrophy treatment for significant major disease, I, I think that um, I think this is a real milestone. As as we we let off, I think just like with anti-VEGFs, we started with anti-VEGF 1.0, then moved to 2.0. Now maybe we're at 3.0 with combination therapy. So I, I think I'm, I'm very happy that this is approved and I hope that others will be as well. Um, this allows the, the ecosystem to continue to invest in, in new treatments in this, in this condition. But, but, it, you know, I, I would point out that, you know, this, a lot of people are concerned about the minimal efficacy of this agent. And just as you mentioned, Alan, it is a milestone because we've had nothing. We've had major failures. I can't tell you how many people I've told something's on the horizon for their GA only to see lampalizumab fail and others fail and, you know, everything get delayed. And I've had a lot of patients that I've been uh, promising something on the horizon for quite a long time. And it's great to finally be able to give them something uh, because it really it really is nice to uh, finally come with something that helps them. But in the PDT days, we were just delaying the visual loss. And 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 so you have to realize that that innovation doesn't usually happen all at once. Uh, with the with the great anti-VEGF agents we have now, it usually starts slower, as you mentioned. And PDT did very little in, in, a, in the scheme of things. Uh, for for improving visual acuity, just as this does very little in that regard, but it's a step, and I think we'll make great progress on this uh, the stepping stone in the future. Yeah, I think there's been some criticism regarding you know visual acuity or vision benefit with this drug. You know, I, I think it's important to note that in the trial, you know, large large majority of these patients were foveal involving, and so and they were large lesions, you know, eight millimeters on average or so. And so I think that, you know, if, if we look at subsets of these patients, you know, I would expect that in smaller lesions and non-foveal lesions, it's probably easier to show uh, vision benefit. Um, you know, in this trial, they did show some vision benefit in terms of microperimetry data uh, with reduced, you know, number of scotomatous points in the 18 to 24 month time period in that junctional zone of lesions. But um, and, I, and I suspect over time, we may see more benefit too. But I think that, you know, the, the size of these lesions and the foveal lesions may have uh, blunted the vision benefit when we look at it, when we look for it. 
I agree. And in addition to this, visual function is difficult to measure in these elderly individuals. These are very noisy tests, microperimetry and others, the BCVA included. Also, these studies were not designed for function as a primary endpoint. In order to do so, Usha Chakravarti and others show using the large UK data set that you need to actually enroll small lesions that are subfovial so that you still have a little area next to the fovea that you can impact fast in a short study like this. This study was too short to pick up a functional change. We might see it in the extension study in Gale, so we're looking forward to those data. But again, we have a mixed population with 60 plus percent subfovial. These are large lesions, not those small lesions that you should enroll for function. And then the rest are extrafovial at different distances from the fovea. So tough thing to measure in this type of study would have to have a different design for function as primary. I would like to ask the panel's thoughts on the competitor uh, company, Iverix Agent, with respect to their recent report of uh, you know, less visual loss of three lines or greater and the small subset of patients that had that. Um, any thoughts on that report? I know their their patient mix uh, was extrafovial and would be, you know, potentially better for showing a visual change than the Apellus uh, group. But any thoughts from the panel? Yeah, I think that it's encouraging when we see any of these um, potential functional benefits from these agents. And, and as you said, they're different studies and it's it's hard to make exact cross-study comparisons. Um, although the, the Apellus study does have uh, over 400 patients that are um, non-foveal as well. So they do have a fair amount there, but I think it's important to, to look at all these, to look at the, the safety and efficacy of each one, but all of these opportunities to help discern which patients may benefit the most and which patients may not benefit as much from these treatments will be important. And I think both Apellus and Iveric will do um, a great deal of work to, to try to understand those, those outcomes best and figure out how to use those. But I do find it encouraging to see um, a potential functional benefit, whether it's preventing visual loss or stabilizing vision. Any uh, other summary comments um, from our panel? I just think it's a real exciting time. I will be interested to see uh, the two-year results from the um, Iveric study to see if if indeed they do show you know uh, more in the way of visual benefits. And I'm excited to be able to have access to hopefully two drugs in this, but it's really wonderful to have uh, a new agent and an untreatable disease after so many decades. Yeah, I'm really excited also. I think our patients are excited. They've been, they've been waiting for this. We have you know, many, many patients that come in each month asking if the drug is out yet. Uh, and it's so gratifying to be able to say, yes, you know, the drug is out and we may have another one on the way. And so I agree with Bob, but, uh, you know, this is an exciting time for us. And I think that it's just the beginning in, in the treatment of GA. Excellent. Nora? I agree with Bob also. I feel that the approval of this first treatment for GA was important and historic. And you might have represented, as Dilshore, you said, maybe the end of the beginning, to quote Winston Churchill. It's the end of the beginning of research in this very difficult disease area. 
So I truly look forward to more therapeutic options that will become available for GA and perhaps earlier dry MD stages, intermediate, et cetera, in the near future. Jeffrey? Yeah, I think just to, uh, to tack on with what uh, Bob Dilsher and Nora have said, this is the first step in a very important path to hopefully getting complete control of this disease. And, and ultimately, once we learn how to, to not just slow down, but stop the progression, then maybe, maybe some of these new approaches will help us actually reverse some of the vision loss in these patients. Incredibly um, important time for us and for patients. Um, we have um, world experts here on this panel. I'm very grateful. Bob's grateful. And um, the readership and listening audience will be as well. I couldn't agree more with Nora's comment about we need to begin to move earlier in AMD before there's essentially the house is burned down. Um, looking at earlier stages of intermediate AMD, and there's a lot of research going on in GA itself. Just to put it in perspective, there's not only Iveric, but there are oral medications. There are gene therapy medications that are being looked at in the Janssen program, in the gyroscope program. Um, there are cell therapies that are being explored, surgically delivered in the subretinal space from the, the Astellis program, the Genentech lineage program. So we have a lot of shots on goal, but I think one of the important concepts that we should be thinking about in our listeners, our ecosystem, is that we need to start looking earlier um, in the course of dry AMD. So, Rebecca, do you want to take us home? Yes, this has been a really fantastic discussion, and I want to thank each and every one of you for joining us today. This concludes our episode on GA Therapy Pearls. Please tune in for future episodes of New Retina Radio.